for this morning. Please turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. A couple of quick uh, housekeeping items, a few things I just want to share with you before we get into the sermon proper. I know it's already been... The reality is that um, the uh, scripture journals... There's a few more left at the Welcome Center. I think they sell them for $5. Obviously, if you don't have that, we still want you to have this resource if you like to use it. Some people like to use their own Bibles to take notes or a journal. These scripture journals will help you go through Exodus as the pastoral team preaches through this book. People, you'll see them around the church. People like these. So that's something that helps you. I want you to know those are available at the Welcome Center uh, until we run out of them. And I uh, also want to let you know, from time to time, people ask about Bible study resources I want to let you know this morning that Table Talk Magazine, uh, it's a ministry, a devotional from Ligonier Resources out of Florida. They're actually working through the book of Exodus this year. So I was, I was heartened to read for Exodus chapter 3 some, some devotions from February of 2022. And so you'd probably be a little ahead of us, but we would eventually catch up uh, if you want to possibly look at that as a resource for you to subscribe to. It's pretty easy to find online and to get... Uh, connected with that way. Um, so, yeah, Exodus chapter 3. Let's go ahead and uh, kind of frame it today, and then we'll read, read the text. Uh, oh, well, I did, I did forget one more thing. The, we have a membership class on August 7th. You can register for that online or let a leader know about it, because we do uh, want you to be a member of the church. If, it's, if you've received the gospel, or we want you to hear the gospel in the class again, if you haven't received the gospel, and possibly consider being a member of the church. So you're connected with the body that takes the Lord's meal each month. So we want that for you, and uh, we hope that you'll consider doing that in August if you have not yet done so. Um, I was in middle school when I first started sensing God calling me to receive the gospel. I think I, I, I'm really grateful for a godly heritage, not a preacher's pedigree, but for a godly heritage. Um, I say not a preacher's pedigree because I don't have a preacher in my family direct, but I do have a godly heritage. My uh, grandpa on my mother's side was moved by the revivalistic impulses of the Deep South and was converted in Arkansas as a fairly young parent to my mother, and he just always went to church, never, never missed, always went to church, and they called him the bubblegum man because he would hand out bubblegum or butterscotch discs or something at the door, and uh, just a wonderful example for me, fifth grade education, he was a carpenter uh, in northeastern Arkansas, built a lot of houses there with the team that he worked with, and just always had a lot of respect for him uh, in that way, but I, I fell in love with the Word of God in many ways by watching them, but for it to be personal for me, uh, it, it, it was probably the middle school when it started to happen, and that doesn't mean there wasn't fits and starts and, and issues uh, along the way, but I do remember particularly a moment in time as a middle schooler when I thought, I, I want this gospel for my own, and I want to know the Lord. And I'm, I'm grateful to people uh, like Joe and Arlene Wilson. He's passed away. Uh, she's quite elderly now, but she's, she's still living. And so far as I last checked in southeast Missouri where I grew up, I'm thankful for those that, that catechized me in the Word of God in that little rural church, taught me the Word of God in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. It's one of the reasons why uh, though the efforts may seem meager uh, to the outside world, I'm so grateful for 
the little things that we do to try to teach our kids, to try to help them understand the Word, because they need their consciences shaped by the Word of God that they might be readied for salvation, to put it in the words of, of 2 Timothy, the words of Paul in 2 Timothy. Remember how your grandma and mom got you readied for salvation. And that's certainly my story, uh, the way that the, the church uh, worked for me in that, in that way. Imperfectly, for sure. I mean, the, the church had problems and issues that, that I could go on and on about it. But the reality is God's people were there, and they taught me the Word of God. But teaching me the Word of God and then me receiving the Word of God, well, those aren't exactly the same thing. And I got to thinking about and have thought a lot about across time, you know, who moved first? Did it me, was it me moving to God or was it, was it God moving to me? And I, I think the text today really helps us with that question. It's a very important question. It's an everyman kind of question. Like, if, if, if you know God personally, who moved first? Was it, was it God moving to you or was it, was it you moving to God? Is it, to put it in a, a little bit different uh, language pattern, was it, was it you climbing up the mountain to get to God and just clawing and scratching and I finally got there, I got a hold, you know, or was it, was it God uh, coming down from the proverbial mountain to get to you? Uh, what, what, what was it and what is it and, and, and what, how should it be described? And sometimes our perceptions initially in our Christian walk, our perceptions of getting started, they, they may not be, they may not hold biblical warrant. Sometimes what we sense and then what the Bible actually describes is not exactly uh, the same thing. A dear brother reminded me of a quote in membership class about a year ago. He said that D.L. Moody famously said that some conversions are like lightning bolts. Boom, you know what happened. And then some conversions are like sunrises. They just, you see the lights on, but it kind of came up slowly. And so I don't know, for those of you in the room that uh, are believers, and I assume this, most of you, based on just talking to you, I don't know if it was a sunrise or if it was a lightning bolt, uh, uh, maybe a little of both. You know, maybe the lights are on, but there was bolt times. But the question is, can you track to having received the gospel for yourself, or are you quite confident that you receive the gospel for yourself for salvation? And if you haven't, as an unbeliever, I want to say to you this morning, you really should. I mean, right from the onset, I just want to plead with you that you would receive Christ as your own. You may not know every little jot and tittle about what that means going forward, but I, I want to urge you, even if you cannot resolve the question of the hour as to whether God came down to you or you climbed up to God, if you'll just receive Him today, we'll sort that out. We'll sort all the theology of it out later. Uh, and so the rest of the sermon hopefully is instructive downstream, but, but, but step number one is how much you need to humbly receive the God who's making himself uh, known to you through the clear teaching of his word uh, by the Spirit. And I, I, I think that's probably a good way to frame this sermon, just, just before we read the text, if you'll just indulge me in two or three more sentences. Uh, Moses is recalling um, a, a dialogue with God and that he's writing about that's now in our scripture later than when it happened. And in recalling that dialogue with God, he's... He's, he's hearkening back to an odd experience with a, a bush that should have been consumed by its burning, but it wouldn't be consumed. He's hearkening back to that. And I think from that, he experiences God, well, there's no doubt he experiences God coming down to, to call him and to reveal things about himself, uh, as well as keep some things concealed, and to commission him and to commission all of, of the people there for a great work. Uh, so that's kind of going to be our three points today as we think about the text and we're reading from it. The first 10 verses, you're going to hear God coming down to call 
And, and then in verses 11 through 15, God revealing himself to his people. And then finally in verses 16 to 22, God commissioning. So if you're a note taker, you might write down those three words, call, reveal, and commission. Think about the first 10 verses as we read them, and then 11 through 15, and then 16 to 22 to kind of try to, try to get our moorings with such a complex and robust text of Scripture as Exodus chapter 3. But, but just before we read it, and then I, I preach it proper, I just, I just want to say that most popular understandings of God coming and calling us and coming to us is that we are kind of climbing up and He's coming down. Um, or we're climbing all the way up, or he's meeting us in the middle. And, and what I think the text conveys, and what the, the thesis of this particular text is and the sermon is to me, is that it's, that it's God coming down. That it's, it's him coming to us to justify us. That we're not, we're not climbing up, not even 10 feet to get to him. He's coming all the way down to us. And, and that may seem a little odd, because I'm also going to talk about the work you're supposed to do as a believer toward the end of this sermon. But I think, I think you can feel and sense the, what is true and beautiful and good about it if you'll, if you'll allow yourself to really get immersed in the text today. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. I'm prayerful for that. Let's read the text now. It's uh, Exodus chapter 3. There's 22 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt, of Israel rather, out of Egypt? The Lord said, But I will be with you. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now verse 16 to the end. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a, go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people, people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. So first in this text, we look at the first 10 verses and think about this magnificent experience of the burning bush under the thought of God calls a people to himself. God calls a people to himself. So God endearingly comes down, the true and, shepherd, true, true and great shepherd comes and communicates to his people through his appointed mediator, through the deliverer, Moses. And we see that this is a, a priestly endeavor because Moses' father-in-law was known as the priest of Midian. He gave Moses his blessing. Moses had worked for him for many years. He's probably not a man of means. He didn't have the Egyptian wealth at this point, and he had been working for his father-in-law, so not able to accumulate wealth and, and uh, equity in, in his items and whatnot across those 40 years that he was there. Just as a reminder, Moses is now 80. He's lived two-thirds of his lifespan. He's past the prime of his life. He's an older man. He's been shepherding south of Egypt because he had to run away because of an incident that he had in trying to be the deliverer of Egypt earlier in his life. When he wasn't the prime of his life, it didn't work out. And so now he's, he's down south. He's in a, a place of solitude. He has a family. He's probably learning from the kind of lessons that come from being involved in a family, as many of us can attest. He's on the west side of Mount Horeb, Horeb for what that's worth, connected with Mount Sinai in terms of the biblical text and our understanding of geography. He's in this, this space where we now understand it, and he understood it looking back as it being the mountain of God. And we are turned into hearing and replaying a dialogue that the Lord had with Moses. So think of it in terms of a narrative where there's this back and forth, and, and hear the cues going back and forth as we go through the text and try to, try to understand it and, and, and put, apply it to our lives today. So the dialogue begins, if you consider it that way, with Moses not walking past the burning bush. He doesn't walk past the burning bush. It, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, verse 2, in the midst of the bush, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so Moses doesn't just walk past this, this clearly supernatural and unusual experience. He, he says, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? It seems like if a bush is on fire in a dry desert area, it would be burned up. Why is it still, still there? And so to kind of cut through it, we think that this is an appearance of, of God the Son. We think this is an appearance of, of our Lord and calling out of this bush to appoint Moses, we think that the New Testament bears out pretty clearly that this is a, a, a Christophany, a sighting of, of Christ. And 
this, this angel of the Lord language is used sometimes to describe our Lord, like to Joshua as commander of God's army, where you have similar language going on in Joshua. Dialogue begins with Moses when he turns aside, which is the Hebrew word shub, which means to repent. Which is an interesting use of language, turns aside. You might see that in your English print Bible in verse 4. The Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, or verse 3, I will turn aside. So in a sense, Moses repents for the way he's been going and goes a different direction. In other contexts, turning aside means to veer from the path, to, to apostatize or to rebel. So he, he, he turns to see this. He doesn't look away from it. And the Lord endearingly calls out to Moses by saying his name twice. This would have been, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, it would have been understood as an endearing way to refer to someone. Moses, Moses. He's speaking to him with kind terms. and He's honoring the fact that he didn't just look away from this revelation. And Moses replies very similarly to what we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Here I am, which is probably best understood as a kind of military term too, like reporting for duty, sir. Here I am. Pick me. I'll, whatever you need, I'm here. Uh, so there is a, probably an application here for us in that uh, very often when we feel called to the Lord, uh, we, we give the blank check to God, not really understanding what that's going to mean. <laughs> like, here I am reporting for duty, sir. And then, oh, well, no, you don't really want to use me to do that. I don't think I'm good enough for that. And I'm a little bit too good for that. You, you know how it goes, right, as a believer. Uh, so there's, there's probably something worth meditating on uh, there. Here I am, he says in, in the second half of verse 4. And I, I think it's right to say, if you look at verse 5, we're just kind of, kind of marching through these verses, I think it's right to say that the Lord expects a response to His holiness. He expects Moses to respond. I think every man, for that matter, a response to him as he is. In many ways, that's what we do every Sunday. Like we are responding to the hymnness of God. We're responding to, the, to, to God's both eminence and transcendence, his personalness and his unknowableness. He transcends anything that we are. His, we are responding to God. That's certainly what I think is expected for, for every single man and woman of God. Every believer is to respond to God on the basis of his utter holiness. And the response here is, uh, don't come any, or the, the statement rather is, the assertion from the Lord, don't come any closer, you're on holy ground. Operatively, the ground is holy. Why? Because God's presence is there. You're on holy ground. And he instructs him to take his shoes off. You don't need to take your shoes off. Your shoes aren't dirty. You haven't been shepherding sheep on the side of a mountain, okay? The application here is not for everybody to take their shoes off right now. I mean, I do love that, that song, you know, Take Your Shoes Off, Moses, You're on Holy Ground. It's a great song. Uh, like, like it a lot. You don't, if you don't know it, look it up. It's kind of a country feel. It's just a wonderful little song. But I don't know that that's the application for you. Don't take your shoes off, Matthew. You're on holy ground. What the application might be for you is, God is holy, be reverent, and seek purity. God is holy, be reverent, and seek purity. As you as a God-called person should not be flippant with the things of God. Like there's a reason when we are gathering together for worship, that there is a reason that we, we follow certain protocols. 
in new covenant worship, in Christ's blood, as you read through the New Testament, there are cues for how we should, should regulate our worship, even order our worship. And we've made a study of this with other church leaders and other pastors in the area over the past couple of years, and we've been edified by the study, and some of that is evidence when we come together here. And one thing that you may have picked up on in tone that we may not have just said out loud over and over again, and I'll just say it in plain prose now, is if we've got some kind of jovial stuff to do or some announcements to make, we do it before we call to worship, not after. Because once we call to worship, this is no laughing matter. We are here to hear from God by His Word. Whether that's the saying word, it's not just worship because they're singing. This is music. We're using the word to worship through song. Or whether it's the preached word, or it's the prayed word, it's all the word. It's seeing the word through the, the ordinance like the Lord's Supper or baptism. That's all part of word-based ministry. And we want to do the things that God has commanded us to do. And we don't want to bind your conscience to do things that the Lord has not commanded us to do within the corporate worship of the saints, within the worship of the people of God. So we've really thought about that. And we think we've been edified by trying to reform our practice to the Word rather than us kind of take the Word to get some cues from and then go do kind of whatever we really want to do. I don't think that's opposite to what's going on with the holiness of God being witnessed by Moses. Because anytime you are called by God, let alone experiencing God and commissioned by God, there is an aspect to your worship of God in the presence of God that should not be defined by flippancy. It should be defined by gravity. There's a gravity to these things. That's why the Bible says in another place, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Because there's a gravity. So I, I, I get it. Like the, the allure of it being completely social is real, because I love you all too, and I, I'm, we're going to have a great time tonight at the social. There's a place for all of that. In the hallway, it's fine for you to tell a joke and laugh. I'm not saying that we're completely uh, going to, to change that, although I think sometimes you walk out, you probably should be quiet. There probably should be a sense of awe. It depends on how the Lord is guiding you to respond. When you're coming in here, and when we're in here, think of the fact that the desire is vertical. I want to worship my Lord. I want to meet with the Lord. I want to hear from the Lord by His Word. And take your proverbial shoes off in reverence and holiness because you're, you're on holy ground. Because we're calling upon the Lord, we want the presence of God amidst the people of God. So there's a certain protocol in our worship. There's a certain way that we do things that where we're trying to be careful, to be honorable toward the Lord. Because He's holy. That word holy means apart or majesty or sacredness. He also connects us, if you look at verse 6, He connects us to... Our history. Verse 6 says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting. He lists the patriarchs there. So this was 1400s BC. He's, he's going back several hundred years to pick up on the patriarchs. And in addition to going back there, he's probably also referencing his own father, Amram, because father is not plural not just the God of your fathers. I'm the God of your dad. I'm the God of your father, he says in verse 6. And Moses becomes aware that God knows where he comes from. And that 
causes a response of greater humility, of fear, of covering his face. God knows you. Like, he knows where you come from. And there's no need to hide it, whatever your story is, because he already knows it anyway. In fact, there's something about your transparency with God, not only about how you feel, but about what's been done to you and what you've done. That really puts you in a place to receive from God. He's not amused with um, kind of shady communication. God wants us to be real with Him. And I think that, that we are attracted to realness in our worship. I think that's, that's, that's pretty clear just based on the way you respond to the things that, that are and are not done here. As far as, as history, this is not just your biological history. He's also really referencing a fam, faith family history with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, there's this deep desire within us and I've talked about this before in here, so I'll be brief with this, but for the sake of not everybody that's here today having been here before, there's a, a, a sort of neat factor to Ancestry.com and looking back in the archives and finding a picture of a great-great-grandpa or finding a reference to somebody that was involved in such and such event back there. And I enjoy that myself. In fact, I, I, I like to do that when I get together with my own uh, biological family to talk about things and try to piece together stuff. We, we want to know where we come from, uh, and as we get a little more mature, hopefully warts and all, right? I mean, we want to know the whole thing, all the way back. And yet, at the same time, there is something there that we can't quite complete. Like, if you get back ever how many hundred years, you're just going to hit a roadblock. Like, there's just not good enough records. You just can't be sure. Uh, and so I think there's something in this text that's really helpful to encourage our yearning to have some sense of our own history. Um, God not only knows it all, He's chronicled it all, and what He has done is connect you not with your family's goodness or badness and their ability to climb up the mountain and get to God, but what He's doing with Moses here is to say, I'm connecting you with your biological family that were believers, but I'm connecting you by adoption to faith's family history. Everybody that's ever believed, I'm connecting you. And there is a richness to that that maybe you still do Ancestry.com or whatever. I don't know all the websites and everything. You probably correct me afterward on how people do this now. I just know that was been a fad for people to look at the records and figure it out. But there's a liberty in this and a wonder in this because looking forward, can you imagine the, the archival studies and the excitement of heaven when you look back at faith's family history, heaven's infinitely interesting because God's there, and he's going to have infinitely interesting things for us to do. Can you imagine some of these conversations? Like, did you know great-great-grandma, or whatever the case may be, was involved in a spiritual battle in this way, and God brought her through in that way, and she can tell you about it in heaven? I mean, because she was a believer. This is really neat when you stop to let it happen. Moses is totally floored by this whole thing. It's, it's too much for him to put into words, even as he looks back on it. And he's trying to give us the dialogue straightforward. So verse 7 says, I have surely seen and I've heard and I know what your people have been through under the Egyptian thumb of slavery. And I'm going to deliver them to a good land, a land where their flocks are taken care of, where their material needs are taken care of. And 
Behold, that I'm going, I'm going to get them away from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians that oppressed them, taking us through verse 9. And then verse 10 is really, this is where it really gets interesting. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you can bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Um, <laughs> it was all going pretty well until then. And now Moses is going to kind of argue with God a little bit along the way. Whoa, 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 whoa. You want to use me? Like, I, mean, I tried that 40 years ago when I had muscles. You know, you can't spell muscles without a C. When I had muscles, I tried that 40 years ago, and they didn't buy into my leadership, and I'm not about to go up north now and tell them what to do. Them elders, they didn't follow me. Them people, they didn't follow me. They said, who are you to rule us? Don't you remember? I mean, with my own two fists, I punched out that Egyptian taskmaster, and they ran me out on a rail. I mean, I'm surely, surely you don't want me to do that. And that's going to begin the whole dialogue part where Moses is protesting whether or not He's really the right person for uh, this job. And, and so, so our first point is, is God calls the people to himself. He called Moses. He calls us to himself too. Our second point, beginning in verse 11, is God reveals himself to his people. He reveals himself to his people. And this is where the first and the second point, they kind of lock together because his call and his revelation go together, but we're pulling them apart a little bit for the sake of understanding and for teaching. So let me say one more word about the call and then talk about his revelation of himself. So when we talk about God calling us, I think a lot of times in, in evangelical light Christianity, God's calling me to do this, or God's calling me to do that, or God's calling me to go there, or God's calling me to eat, you know, chicken for dinner, or God's calling me, or God's calling me, or God's calling me. And I, I'm not advocating that God doesn't call you to specific geographies or to, to study a particular discipline or do a particular job or, or plant a specific church or do whatever the case may be. I don't advocate that that's not the case. I just wish we'd change our nomenclature a little bit because I don't know that call is the best word for that. See, God's guiding me, I think, to do this. I, I think God's giving me an impulse to want to do this. Call in the Bible has a, a semantic range of meaning. And very often, call is calling you to himself. It's in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, kaleo, I call. And the way it's used very often is calling you to himself, differently to salvation. Some students of the Bible track this experience of Moses as his call to the Lord, as his conversion. And I think there's a lot of weight to that. So as much as his commissioning, which is our third point today, again, waffling, just going all over the place here. I can't stay linear with anything. But his commissioning is wrapped up in his call, fair enough. But really, the gospel call to you is to Christ. So I brought, uh, Brother Will's going to teach a class in, during Sunday school in the fall on the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith in Modern English. So chapter 10 in that confession is simply titled, Effectual Calling. I'm just going to read you a couple sentences from it. Effectual Calling. Like the use of the word call in Scripture. In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectively or effectually by His Word and Spirit those He has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills by his almighty power, turns them to good, and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. And then it cites about you know, 
15 different Bible verses for you to read, and so on and so forth. And then it, the very next section begins with, those who God effectively calls, He also freely justifies. My advocacy here, using the 1689 as, as a, a historical precedent and authority, is to say that the Bible teaches that God is not primarily calling you willy-nilly to an emotional experience of what you should do with your life and service. He's calling you to Himself. If we get first things first, a lot of second things take care of themselves. And part of God, when He calls you to Himself for salvation, part of that immediately is a, a teaching enterprise. Even in the Great Commission of the New Testament, when we, we get all wrapped up in the fact that you've got supposed to have a bunch of new baptismes. Let's count baptisms. Go ye therefore to all the nations. You know, they're worshiping on another mountain in Galilee. And Jesus commissions the apostles and says, I've got all the authority in the world, so here's what I want you to do. Go ye therefore, baptizing, and we, we get hung up on the baptism part. Let's all get wet, right? And there's something to that. But then teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Well, where is everything that God has commanded you? There's a lot to obey, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot to learn, isn't there? So immediately we're thrust into this learning, teaching enterprise. One of the reasons that the sermons can go on for 50 minutes. Why? There's a lot to learn. We want to prime the pump so you go home and you study a lot of cross-references, you think about it. There is a teaching aspect to the preaching, even though preaching is not reducible simply to teaching. But the commission tells us we're supposed to learn. So when God calls you to himself, he begins to reveal himself to you, point number two, verses 11 through 15 in Exodus 3, and in revealing himself to you, there's a whole lot to learn. And you kind of get bug-eyed about it, like, wow. And then you eventually find your way to, through your serving or worshiping of God, through your becoming aware of his nature, of what's been concealed, what's been revealed, you kind of get to the point where, okay, well, I need to be doing things. And so what does that look like for me? And so there's a guiding and a yearning, but maybe, maybe not a calling per se. Maybe we reserve that as best as we can for the effectual call to salvation that God ensures in terms of justification. Now, this second point proper and briefly, God reveals himself to his people, is encapsulated in verses 11 through 15. Let's just consider a couple of things, like verse 11. In the dialogue, here is Moses who says to God now, whoa, 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 who am I? Who am I to go tell 600,000 people, plus women and children, let alone the elders beforehand, how am I supposed to tell them, I, uh, no, this is not, no, 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 no. And so who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and do this? And then verse 12, the Lord answers his protest, and, and, and he answers him in a, very, in a very interesting way. And if you just read this in your Bible in a year plan, you just go to Rifle right through it. It's not going to have a lot of meaning. But if you slow down, I think you could see exactly how the Lord always measures His words for His people. He says, but I will be with you. And Moses is like, say what? Like, I need an army. Like, like I need some equipment. Uh, I'm old now. Give me... And he's later going to say, I don't speak well. And all these, pro what? So what's, what's, what is the statement here? What's, what's going on here? Who am I? I, I think the right way to, to, to ponder this is Moses still has lessons to learn, even as an older gentleman. If in his 
younger zeal, he punches out the Egyptian taskmaster and got lit from his people for it, and didn't get, he was denied being their deliverer then. Now in his twilight, well past his prime, Moses looks to himself still, not in his strength, but for all of his weak muscles. Didn't have any strength anymore. And thinks, well, I mean, I can't do it now. What is the common denominator between Moses at 40 and Moses at 80? Who's he looking to to lead the people out of Egypt? Himself. And who do we look to to lead God's people out of their slavery? Well, I mean, I know who we should look to, but if we're just being real, who do we often look to? Am I eloquent? Am I strong? Am I capable? Am I educated? Am I smart? Am I, am I quick-witted? Am I persuasive? Have I got enough time in this thing? You know, God's always been pleased to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise and to draw His people to Himself. Can't you think about that time and time again in Scripture? He's so, he so wants to do that. But, but the problem with Moses is he first has an I can do it attitude, and then later he has I'm a too weak to do it attitude, and they're both fundamentally rooted in pride. The I, the me. Neither is trusting Christ wants to do it through me. So faith acts. Faith does. Faith acts believing God is acting through us. And Moses is not there yet, but he's getting there. Faith doesn't set back complacently. Faith may rest in Christ, but does not allow us to relax on our backsides. Before we talk more about doing, let's talk a little more about trusting, because that's really our second point, revealing. This, in this dialogue, God not only says, I am with you, and you're going to come full circle back to the same spot, and all those people are going to worship with you, trust me. But he, he also says, in an answer to a follow-up question, who he is. Like in his essence, in his being, who is he? Or as much as he's going to say. Look at verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 13 for context. Next, Moses asks, what should I tell them that your name is? And God answers Moses in this, this dialogue, I am. I am who I am. It, it's, it's an answer, but it's kind of a non-answer. It's not, it's not a dodge, I don't think. I think it is a sincere question although it's aggressive, Pharaoh would have wanted to know which God this is. He would have been familiar with many gods and think, well, I've heard of that God and that God and that God. I don't know this, I don't know this Yahweh. I don't know who you're talking about. Um, I'm not sure who this is. But it, it's not just an actual answer to a question that might be asked. It it's also could be interpreted as a, an, a question of submission. God doesn't submit to people, ever. He is personal to his people, but he doesn't submit to his people, and not certainly not to his enemies, not ever. He is holy, and he is other, and he is different from his creation. 
And He commands our respect, which is for our good and for His glory, to be sure, but He commands our respect. And God will so judge anyone who does not relent and repent toward Him. To put it in earlier language, to turn aside from where we're going to turn to Him. And God's still there. 3,500 years later after these events, when Moses heard him, he's still there. He's still calling people to himself and revealing himself to people and then commissioning people to do things. That would be our last point. But we have this scripture. Between the ecstatic manifestations like the burning bush or the incarnate Lord Christ rising from the dead, we have this scripture. And he's coming again, and it's going to be magnificent. But we're not left without the Spirit. We're not left without the Word. We have these wonderful means, these great opportunities to hear from God, to be in the presence of God, to take our proverbial shoes off in purity and reverence and to hear from God. And we must not be flippant and we must relish the opportunity in this life to know our eternal Maker more and more. And so his answer is not a non-answer, even if it does, as one pastor said, conceal a little more than it reveals. It's not a non-answer. It's an actual answer. I am who I am. Or as some of your translations will say, I will be who I will be. Using the Hebrew verb hayah and forming together Yahweh, Yahweh to make a statement about God that reflects his fame, his eternality, his self-existence his sufficiency, his unchangeability to reflect something about himself. Psalm 135 says it like this in verse 13. He says that this is this Yahweh, this is his forever name. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. Anytime you have all caps, L-O-R-D, it's reflecting this divine name as is recorded in Exodus 3.14 in this dialogue. O Lord, I am who I am, Yahweh. I am has sent me to you. Jesus identifies with the Lord as the, as the I am. He consciously refers to himself as deity. And the Gospel of John makes this probably most prolific of any of the Gospels when he says things like, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door to the sheep, I am the, the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the true vine, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. He's saying, I'm that one in Exodus 3.14. And the reason, one of the many reasons that the, the religious leaders of the day in the rejection of Jesus as the Christ were, were angry is they rightly interpreted that Jesus was referring to himself as the Lord of Exodus 3. He's saying, I'm, I pre-exist Moses. In fact, we can make this very clear. If you look at just the eighth chapter of John, we see this self-identification with deity by Christ. He says in John 8, 23 to 29, for example, Jesus said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, in a different dialogue here in the first century AD, who are you? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who are you, Jesus? Son of a carpenter? I mean, what, what, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And they didn't understand what he'd been speaking to them about the Father, but he had been speaking about the Father. Verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
meaning on the cross, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And the chapter ends, nearly ends, with a sentence in verse 58 of John chapter 8, when Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and say it with me, I am. Now, what is that significant? Why do I suddenly become dialogical? Because that is a theme of the whole chapter. Abraham was four or 500 years before Moses. So when he references Exodus 3.14, he's saying, before your fathers, 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 father, 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 before that, I am. It is an amazing statement in Exodus 3. It is an even more amazing statement in John 8, 58. Jesus is saying, I was there. Crazy until it's, until it's internal. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, demanding to know someone's name was a sign of authority. And giving in was a sign of submission. So Yahweh threads a fine needle here because he won't submit. But he does reveal to his people lovingly and carefully that he is the I am. Thirdly and finally, God commissions His people for Himself. God commissions His people for Himself. Let's consider how verse 15, or 16 rather, how it reads. It says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into this land, this good land, flowing with milk and honey that's currently occupied by these people. And they're going to listen to you this time, Moses. And you and the elders together are going to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say to him, The Lord, our God, has met with us. Please let us go on this three days journey into the wilderness. And I'm going to stretch out my hand, and I will give. And, and you're, not, you're, going to, you're going to have the victor. The spoils belong to the victors. You're going to win. You're going to have victory. You're going to take stuff with you when you go out of Egypt. And, and so I am. I want, I want you to pick up just a couple of quick things here in this commissioning section of this chapter. I, I want you to notice that the I am or that I will be is, is laced throughout this text. So if you, if you look back up at, uh, at verse 12, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Now this statement's starting to ring a little fuller now than it did when you first read it, right? And you're going to come back to this place in victory. And then it says in verse 14, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And then it says in verse 17, I will bring you up out of Egypt. I will be, I will be, I will do. And it says in verse 21, I will give. The I am will give this people favor with the Egyptians. You're going you're gonna to take stuff with you. You're not going to leave without reparations. So the I am is, is throughout it. And in this commissioning of Moses, it's not just of Moses, it's also of the elders, and it's not just of the elders, it's of all the people. They're going to do this thing together. Think about the Passover and the blood on the doorpost. It's going to be all of them working together in the commission. And even though Moses has a kind of special part to play in it, don't ever envy the leader. You don't know what he's been through and you don't know what he's going through. Moses didn't want to do it. I mean, it was a gut-wrenching experience. Be thankful for Moses, but don't be jealous of Moses because God is jealous for you and you don't know what he wants you to do in the commission. You don't know what your part is to play fully. Let him reveal it in space and be obedient to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Specifically, I think of the Apostle Peter. Jesus is basically saying, feed my sheep. 
Peter's trying to kind of do a little bit of a, of a, of a juke, and he says, well, what about John? What are you going to do with that guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about what I'm doing with him. I'm worried about what I'm guiding you to do. I think there's something to that. We, we tend to recalcitrate from responsibility by looking at, well, I can't do it like him, or I can't, I can't do it like her, or, well, I really, if, I, if you would give me that calling, God, then I'd be energetic for your service, but I'm not because I don't have that calling. That's all just really missing the point. Nobody really wants to do what they do in this thing until they get involved in it and they understand that they are commissioned to it and they're a part of a greater work. The commission is great for us in the new covenant. Go you therefore baptizing all nations to the world, teaching them all to obey everything I've commanded. It's great, and it's all of us, but we've got to figure out, as one said, how to live together or we're going to die alone. You know, we've got to figure it out. And I think the text really helps us here because think about the Great Commission. Some of you Bible scholars, if not, just listen with me. How does the Gospel of Matthew end the Great Commission and end the book? What does Jesus, the I Am, say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the I Am is with you always, every generation in this commission as we seek to be obedient and faithful to him in what our commission means for our lifetime, the I am is with us. He's always with us. He's with you. He's with me. He's with us. And there is an important pattern here in this commissioning. It is rooted in a three days journey. Look at verse 18, the second half of it. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. A three days journey into the wilderness. It's an installment. Pharaoh's not going to accept that bargain. But what does three days intimate? Well, you look forward a little bit. It certainly intimates Jonah, doesn't it? He was in the belly of a fish for how long? Yeah, but you could probably think a little bit more than that. I mean, it's more than a Sunday school answer. What do we think of with three days? We think of the I am, don't we? Who, though dead and buried, what happens three days later? And I think that's probably the point. I mean, the point is that we look to the I am in all that we are, that we're learning, and that we are to do instead of looking to ourselves. Moses learned it in chapter 2 with his young strength that fell on his face, and he learns it in chapter 3 with the I'm nothing, but I'm going to use you anyway because I get the glory. I wonder how it applies to you. Young people, worship. Worship him. Older people, still serve him. He's still sovereign, still serve him. You're still commissioned. Everybody, pray. Every man, woman, boy, girl, pray. Women work and men work in the harvest field of the Lord. Do what it is that you can do. Rest, but never relax on your backsides. Elders and folks that function like elders in our church, and wives, speak courageously the truth and speak compassionately with love. God will help you to do it. Everybody teach and disciple. Discipleship's all of our commission. And model with great patience and gentleness and respect. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text today. I'm going to take about a, 